I designed my startups around my own beliefs and philosophies. I believe that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Every single one of us, every single day, taking micro actions to change what we want to see change, cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. That's how we change the world. Hello, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespod, author of You're Not Broke, You're Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. A few weeks ago, I was invited to this conference called Accelerate Her uh, in London. It's a fantastic network bringing together a highly created group of entrepreneurs, CEOs and global thought leaders. There, Hillary Clinton was presenting and the room was like literally filled with amazing women, including the one and only Cindy Gallup. I'd been following her for a while and I just approached her to see if we just, you know, could have a conversation about money on the wallet and why, you know, women need more and how we, we do this. You'll see that Cindy Gallup is a powerhouse. She's an advocate of gender equality, diversity and inclusion. She's an entrepreneur and in her own words, she's the Michael Bay of business and she likes to blow shit up. Cindy is an Oxford graduate whose background is over 30 years in brand building, marketing and advertising. She founded If We Run The World, that's a co-action software launched in beta at TED in 2010 and also subsequently written up and thought as an Harvard Business School case study. She's also the CEO and founder of Make Love Not Porn and she's fighting for fairer, truer representation of sex, promoting content and communication with a mission to change the world. So that's three things we discussed today on The Wallet. One, Cindy shares the challenges she faces securing funding for a startup, how she designed the business model around her beliefs and value, and the daily struggles of building infrastructure as an adult content business, how we women can build our own financial ecosystem. Two, we discussed the disparity in funding between men, women, women of color and minorities, and the mindset shift we need to see in investors to get more founders who happen to be women, funded both broadly and indiscriminately. Three, Cindy tells me her experience of salary negotiations, how she has learned to know her worth, the advice she shares with women, and build their confidence in asking for more and our micro-action compound to be real change. Please note that we are not certified financial advisors. The articles and information made available on Vespod and this podcast are provided for information and educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. I would also like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pensionbee. Pensionbee has helped over 500,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pensionbee, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, check your real-time balance, your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, was Pensionbee calls them Big Keeper. You can sign up to Pensionbee today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investment, your capital is at risk. Pensionbee are also offering you a £25 pension contribution. £20 plus £5 in tax relief when you sign up. To claim this offer, you can follow the link in the show notes. Remember, your capital is at risk. Hello, Cindy. Hi, Emily. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> Welcome to the wallet. Very happy to, yeah, to have you here and talk about one of your favorite topics, money. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll just start by, you know, I'm just wanted you to present yourself and, and you know, introduce yourself to, to those of you who don't know you. Your Twitter bio says, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. Fantastic. I saw this headline everywhere <laughs> from you. It's really your brand. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Sure. So um, my background is 35 years working in brand building, marketing and advertising. And today I'm an entrepreneur. I'm the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. We are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. We're the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the real-world documentary. We are a unique window onto the funny, messy, comical, fabulous ways we all have sex in the real world to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. So we call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. And you, you've launched the platform, what, 10 years ago? I actually launched Make Love Not Porn in its original iteration. It was a little public service announcement website that was structured as porn world versus real world. Um, I launched that 12 years ago at TED in 2009. And the extraordinary global response showed me I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I turned it into makelovenotporn.tv, the business, which I launched nine years ago. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, watching your, your TED talk and I saw, yeah, people talking about it and wanting like, to be on the platform. And I think one of the challenges you had, and, and maybe you can talk about that, is raising money for this business. And especially maybe when you're a woman entrepreneur, you know, there's going to be a lot of challenges associated to that. We're going to talk about women fundraising and VC and, and a, a little bit this world. But can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the main challenges growing your, your business in this industry and maybe with or without uh, any funding initially? Sure. And, and actually, Emily, because we're talking about money, I'd like to start a bit further back than that and talk about how I designed my business model for Make Love Not Porn. Because I designed Make Love Not Porn around all of my own beliefs and philosophies. And one of my beliefs is that I feel very strongly that everybody should realize the value of what they create. And I feel that especially strongly because my background, career-wise, is theatre and advertising, two industries where ideas and creativity are massively undervalued, even by the creators themselves. So I believe that when you create something, anything that gives other people pleasure, you should see a financial return on it. And the more people you give more pleasure to, the greater that financial return should be. And so I designed a revenue-sharing business model for Make Love Not Porn, which is that our members pay to subscribe, rent, and stream social sex videos. Half that income goes to our contributors, whom we call our Make Love Not Porn stars. So I foresaw the creator economy 12 years ago. Um, I'm too ahead of my time for my own good, quite frankly. And when we launched MakeLoveNotPorn.tv nine years ago, I wrote a blog post introducing our business model. And I titled it, How Make Love Not Porn Can Help the Global Economy. And I began it by saying, you know, all those little scam ads that pop up on the internet all the time going, make $2,000 a week working from home. 
Well, now you can. And I explained in my blog post that our aim with Make Love Not Porn was to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your Make Love Not Porn video could get a million rentals at $5 per rental, and we would give you half that income. Now, we're a very long way away from that due to the challenges that I'm about to go on and explain. But I'm thrilled to tell you that in the course of the pandemic, our Make Love Not Porn stars, like everybody else, they've lost jobs, they can't find work. They tell us that our monthly payouts have kept them going, enable them to pay rent, to survive. And it's just wonderful to know that a business model I designed to democratize access to income has been working in that way. I observe that too many people think when they're starting ventures, what one of two things, either this is our industry's only business model, this is the only way our industry has ever made money, it's the only way our industry ever will make money, or they think there are a set number of business models out there and I have to operate one of those. Neither is true. Your business model can be anything you want it to be. And in fact, a very good starting point for designing your own business model is to simply ask yourself the question, how would I like to make money? Because it's a safe bet you'd like to make it not the way you're currently making it. I designed my own business model, what I call the business model of the future, many years ago, even before Make Love Not Porn, because I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. In other words, when brands and businesses come together with their audiences on the basis of values that you all share, and when you then enable those audiences to collectively and collaboratively co-act with you on those values to walk the talk together, you can then make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, benefit society, and benefit the brand and its business. That's what my first startup, If We Ran the World, was, was designed to do, help brands and businesses integrate that business model. And when Make Love Not Porn blew up, and I had to back burner If We Ran the World, because even I, superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. Um, I designed Make Love Not Porn around that business model. So um, I, um, this is a very long-winded response to your original question, because I designed Make Love Not Porn to be a self-sustaining business. Yeah. And honestly, Emily, if I'd had my way, I would never have needed to raise funding because I, like many female founders, believe in designing business models that enable your business to be self-sustaining, to operate under its own steam and to get to profitability. But there's a very fundamental reason why, unfortunately, I cannot do that and I have to raise funding. And that is the fact that I and my tiny team fight a huge battle every single day to keep Make Love Not Porn alive and grow it, basically because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup takes for granted, we can't. The small print always says no adult content. So we have enormous challenges getting funded, and I'm going to come back to that. But we also can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account for Make Love Not Porn. Our biggest day-to-day -day challenge is payments. PayPal won't work with adult content. Stripe can't. Mainstream credit card processors won't work with us. Every tech service I need to use to operate my video sharing platform, in every single case, 
I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what I'm doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they let me, sometimes they don't. It's a very labor-intensive process. I'm so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Quick, easy, simple. I can't do that. Even something as simple as sending our membership emails out. You know, MailChimp won't work with adult content. We were rejected by six or seven partners till we found SendGrid who would. Even something, again, as straightforward as a couple of years ago, I needed a contract user experience designer. I put a perfectly standard UX designer job description up on Upwork. 20 minutes later, Upwork took it down and told us that because we make love, not porn, we are not allowed to advertise jobs on Upwork. And part of the infrastructure piece that is especially infuriating is that we can't advertise. And by the way, this is not simply make love, not porn as a sex tech startup. There is a gendered lens to all of this. Female-led sexual health and wellness companies cannot advertise on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and in traditional media. And that means menstruation ventures, menopause yeah. ventures, you know, fertility ventures. In the meantime, male sexual health and wellness, fine. Erectile dysfunction solutions, come on in. You know. So now the thing is that funding solves all of these problems because all these barriers go away when you write them a big enough check. So this is why I'm setting out this fall to raise a substantial round of funding for Make Love Not Porn. I know my investors are out there. They are impossible to find by the conventional means because they all have one thing in common. Your willingness to fund Make Love Not Porn is entirely a function of your personal sexual journey. It's a function of your personal lens on sex and sexuality driven by your own experience. And I have no way to research and target for that. Not least because sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. The people who look like they would totally get it don't. The people who look like total prudes do. And so I have to put what I'm doing out there all the time because I have to rely on making those synaptic connections that will draw those people to me. And so that is the challenging part. But I'm more optimistic than ever before about raising this funding round this autumn because in the past year, my strategy has brought more and more investors to me. People have reached out going, I saw your post on LinkedIn. I'd like to know more. And so I feel very encouraged by that. Because now the challenge is when we look at where the money is going from VC, from venture capitalists. So if you have a startup, usually, I mean, for, for just for our listeners, you may raise a little bit of, you know, family money. If, if you can, if you can't, you will go to an angel, then to seed, then you have series A, B and C. And the venture capitalists are the ones uh, investing in, in these rounds. 97.2% of the funding is going uh, to startup funded by men. <laughs> so we are getting a very, very small portion of the pie for women. For black women, this is even worse. Do you think this is getting any better? What can we do to, you know, to change the industry? I know you're working with a lot of, of VCs also and, and you know, you're, you're quite active in, in the space. Do you see things are going in the, in the right direction? Right. So first of all, uh, Emily, no, they are not going in the right direction. Okay. Uh, and I'll come on to explain what I mean by that. Um, and secondly, what that means is that there are two things all of us have to do to change this. 
by the way, I speak as someone who's already done this for 12 years. For 12 years, I have been doing two things, parallel pathing, building my startup, Make Love Not Porn, and working to change the cultural context around it. Because I can't succeed unless I do that simultaneously. And so I recommend to other entrepreneurs what I practice myself, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. So there are two solutions to the problem you just outlined. The first is I recommend to every woman that she unashamedly set out to make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. And I explain that I deliberately articulate it like that because that is how much money I want all of us to make. And the reason it's so important is because when each of us makes an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money, we can then use that money to fund other women, to support other women, help other women, to donate to other women. We need to build our own financial ecosystem because the white male one is not working for us. So we should all be doing that. But we should also work to change the cultural context around us. And, and here's what I mean by that. So right now, the way I articulate it is white men get funded on potential. White women get funded on proof and not even then. And black of color women don't get funded. And what I mean by that is... In a white male dominated VC world, it's very easy for a white male VC to look at a white male founder and go, oh, he reminds myself at his age. I can see myself in him. He's great to have a beer with. We reckon he can do this. Let's give him $10 million. Yeah, we went to the same school. Exactly. With a white woman, it's a whole different set of criteria. Well, have you done this before? Have you done it long enough? Have you done it well enough? We are going to grill you on every single number in your pitch deck. We are going to put you through the Spanish Inquisition, and we're still not going to fund you at the end of that. Yeah. And with a black of color woman, they can't even get across the threshold to be rejected. So obviously, a number of female founded funds have sprung up to address this issue, but they can't get funded either. Yep. LPs are reluctant to give female-founded and diverse-founded funds the same humongous amounts of money they pour into white male-partnered funds. Just to explain, LPs, for those of you who don't know, limited partners, they're the individuals, the institutional who have a lot of money and they're putting money into the VC funds and then the VC fund, the venture capitalists, they then invest in the, in the startup. But when the LPs put money into the VCs, they're like, okay, you have to tell me how you're going to invest this money. What is the type of return you expect, you, you know, you're expecting from this investment because I want my money back. And the problem is these guys, the, these LPs are white men <laughs> with, with, with a lot of money. Exactly. And so when LPs refuse to fund female-founded funds, you know, and you have, you know, Female Founders Fund, for example, here in New York, whose first raise a number of years ago was, I believe, the paltry amount of $8 million, yeah. without meaning to, those female-founded funds put female founders through the exact same grilling process because it matters so enormously where they allocate their tiny amounts of capital. So none of this changes until female founders and female founded funds get funded as broadly and indiscriminately as white male founders and white male founded funds do. Because it's only when you 
cascade a colossal amount of capital into us. It's a numbers game. Of course, you'll get a ton of unicorns back. And the enormous irony of this discussion is that right now, 2021 year to date, more venture capital money than ever before has flooded the market. And at the same time, the number of female founders getting funded has gone down to 2.3%. And so the pie is way bigger and we are still getting a smaller slice of that pie. So what what we all have to do um, in this context is we have to implement emotional tactics and solutions. And the reason I say that is because rational arguments for funding female founders and funding female-founded funds do not work. For decades, we have had a ton of data hard facts, hard statistics that prove that diversity drives better business. We have decades of data that show that female founders exit faster, female founders burn less cash, female founders get to profitability quicker, female founders build better business cultures. We don't get sued regularly for sexual harassment, by the way. And yet, none of those facts and figures make any difference. If they did, we'd be looking at a very different picture. And so we have to find emotional solutions. We have to drive a massive mindset shift in investors to redirect that capital to us. And by the way, you know, I'm not just saying this, I'm doing it. I am working on a specific initiative designed to do this, and I'm hoping I'll be able to go public with it in a few months' time. I can't right now. But I am absolutely working to drive this massive emotional, emotional mindset shift in the marketplace amongst investors. So now here, when, you know, we talk about money. You talked about the PayPal mafia in one of your, of your tweets, and basically saying that people who made money invested in PayPal, um, you know, mostly guys and friends, made a lot of money <laughs> and then, you know, continued invested in their own business, in their, in their male businesses. So do you see this happening with women or not yet? Do you see a few of these mafia around some female founders, maybe in the US? Um, so it's starting to happen, but not substantively enough because Silicon Valley is still dominated by white men. And so, you know, for, for our listeners to um, make my point clear, We as women need what we have never had, which is the female version of the PayPal mafia, of the Uber mafia, of the Coinbase mafia, because every single gigantic wealth generating event in Silicon Valley basically creates a closed loop of white guys funding other white guys who go on to fund other white guys. We need to break that loop. We need our own version of the PayPal mafia. And so we need to find a way to create those massive wealth generating events that create a closed loop of women funding women who go on to fund other women because we need that trickle down effect to work for us. And so that's something that with this um, initiative I alluded to mysteriously, I am working with a group of very committed women to make happen, but we all need to work to make that happen. And, and there are several ways in which every one of us out there can help to make this happen. So the first is... Women, when you get wind of a really great deal on a startup, cut other women in. And what I mean by that is that there are a ton of white men who are extraordinarily rich today because many years ago, 
one white man said to his, you know, bro mates, Psst, there's this thing called Uber and I can get you in at $20,000. That's not happening for women. There are many white men who got the chance to come in on a friends and family deal with a relatively small amount of capital who are now humongously wealthy. So, so first of all, women, when you get wind of those of what you think is a really good bet, cut other women in on it. Women who are in a better position, who are investors, because I know women who are now doing this, engineer an allocation that is small amounts of capital. Enable other women to get in on that deal for $5,000, for $10,000. And then women who have made a ton of money out as, as an early employee at any one of those big ventures that has now gone public, absolutely fund other women. You know, um, fund as many other women as you can, spread the wealth, share the wealth. And again, as I say, this is now starting to happen because we are now seeing more women benefiting from these gigantic IPOs. Fund other women to get this virtuous circle going where we create our own version of the PayPal mafia, the Uber mafia, the Coinbase mafia. Okay, so now, Cindy, how do we help women get richer, not necessarily only the entrepreneur, but, you know, anyone with a job or, you know, anyone, you know, freelancer. You're talking about asking for more money, negotiating for yourself. This is sometimes a big shift in money mindset. Um, you talk very openly about money. You're very, I mean, you seem very confident with, you know, managing your finances, asking for money. And I think when you're an entrepreneur going to see these VCs, you have to. I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is money for you? And and were you born like this, wanted to ask more money? Was it always easy? Or how did you make the shift to be, you know, as confident uh, as you are today? Oh, God, no, it, it wasn't always like this. So, you know, my background is my parents were extremely poor. You know, they were both teachers. I am um, half English, half Chinese. I was born in the UK. When I was six, my parents moved to Brunei because my father got a job there. And so I, I grew up in Brunei and Borneo. So, so I don't come from money in any way whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. But also, I was born a woman. And so, as we all know, from the moment we're born as women, everything around us conspires to make us feel insecure about absolutely everything to do with ourselves. The way we look, the way we talk, the way we operate, you know, nice girls do this, nice girls don't do that. Yeah. We spend the rest of our lives coming back from that. And some of us never do. And so I had to learn to negotiate and to demand what I was worth. And, you know, I always remember my very first pay negotiation because I began my career in theatre where there was no money. I mean, you know, there was no point negotiating in theatre because there simply wasn't. I mean, everybody um, is paid appallingly in theatre. And, and that's why I left, quite frankly, and moved into advertising. So I was at, this is London in the late 80s, and I was at an agency called GGT. And I had my, you know, first annual performance and pay review. And I had a target, and I'm afraid it was so long ago, I can't even remember, remember the numbers in this case. But, you know, um, I had a particular target salary that, that I wanted to reach by a certain age. And so I had my um, review with the managing director of the agency and, and my boss, the, I was in account management, account management um, services director. And they gave me a glowing review. I'd done really well. And then they said, you know, this is your pay raise, Cindy. And it was £1,000 short of what I wanted it to be. And so, you know, my heart was hammering in my ribs. And I just remember thinking to myself, Cindy, just start talking. Just 
you know, you've got to ask for a thousand pounds more. And I've got no idea what I'm going to say, but just open your mouth and start, start doing that, you know. <laughs> and so I literally, I just began arguing for a thousand pounds more. I can't remember what I said. My voice, sound, it, was a, it was an out-of-body experience. My voice sounded very small and very far away. And I just went, Bleh, this is why I feel I deserve one thousand pounds more. And both men were quite stunned, by the way, because <laughs> they weren't expecting that. They looked at each other. And then Jim Kelly, the managing director, said, um, okay, Cindy, um, give us five minutes. Just go and wait outside the door. And, you know, I went outside and they shut the door and I waited in the corridor, you know, and then they called me back in. They gave me one thousand pounds more. And I went, this negotiation shit is great. (laughs) (laughs) It is good. (laughs) And in fact, um, you know, because our audience may find this entertaining. So the next time I negotiated was I left GGT and I joined BBH in London in in 1989. And in London, in, in the advertising industry in the 80s, BBH, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, was the hottest agency in London. And so I joined them on the same salary that I was earning at, at GGT with the promise of a pay review in six months' time. So my performance re- pay review was scheduled, and I went, right, I want, I want a pay rise. So I thought, I want a £5,000 pay rise. Now, they're not going to give it to me. They're not going to give it to me. But I'm not going to settle for less than 3000 so I, I you know, prepped, you know, I, I rehearsed my speech, you know, one, five, settle three, one, five, settle three. And so on the appointed day, I remember standing nervously outside the head of account management's office, Mike Willis, you know, repeating to myself like a mantra, one, five, settle three, one, five, settle three. So I went in and he gave me my performance review and it was glowing. You know, I'd done stormingly well. They were thrilled with me. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing all this. I'm thinking, that's great. But, you know, one, five, settle three, one, five, settle three. And then he said, and so, Cindy, you've done such a fantastic job. We're going to give you a pay rise of £6,000. I was so gobsmacked. That was so unexpected. I was literally struck dumb. I was speechless. And I just looked at him. And because I made no response, he thought I was really angry about how low that pay raise was. And he went, but, 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 but of course, um, we'll give you another review in six months' time. You know, and if you're doing really well, then we'll give you some more money. That was fan-bloody-tastic. So you know, my recommendation to women is always negotiate. And what you ask for is the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. And I've been giving women that advice for literally decades. And almost every week, a woman messages me somewhere and says, oh my God, I did it, it worked. So always negotiate. And what you ask for is the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. Is it the same for female entrepreneurs raising money? Um, Yes, absolutely. Because here's the fundamental truth, Emily. People value you at the value you are seen to put on yourself. And I encounter far too many female founders trying to raise tiny amounts. And when you are trying to raise a tiny amount that says, I don't really believe in my vision. I don't believe this business can be big. I don't believe I can succeed in doing what I'm setting out to do. Do not ask for tiny amounts of money. You know, bootstrap. If you, you know, if, if you want more confidence that you have proof of concept to demonstrate traction, whatever. But Quite frankly, and, and, um, and this is the advice I give to women in every situation, but we're talking here specifically per your question about female founders. When you go in to see those white male VCs or those VCs generally, because I very much hope today you're pitching to more women than you ever have before. But what I recommend is bullshit like the men do. 
And I articulate, like, I'm, I'm very semantically precise in everything I say. I'm an English major. The reason I articulate like that is because I literally want you to think that you are bullshitting. And I want you to think that because it doesn't matter how much you think you're bullshitting, you will never, ever bullshit at the level white men do. And so when what's coming out of your mouth is what you think is bullshit, all you're doing is you're finally doing yourself justice. Yeah. I want you when, you, when you pitch yourself to VCs, to think about what you say as, I'm going to start bullshitting. Because we are so naturally inclined not to bullshit that when we talk ourselves up, when we do what we think is over-promoting ourselves, all it is is us finally doing ourselves justice. Let's get the money. You've been very evangelical about working for yourself. So you quit the workplace in 2005. And you said you believe that too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. Why is it not a safe option? Sure. Um, you know, so I'm really asked interviews, you know, if there's anything I would have done differently in my career. You know, the one thing I do wish is that I'd started working for myself a damn sight sooner. You know, and, you know, I'm 61. My generation was the generation that was told, you know, Um, you work hard, you go to university, you get a good degree, you get a good job. I mean, entrepreneurship was absolutely not a, a thing back when I was growing up. And I am now, as you say, I am evangelical about working for yourself because a job, contrary to what people think, is not a safe option. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity, who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. And you've been um, very vocal against this, you know, lean-in philosophy by, you know, Sheryl Sandberg. What do you prefer versus the lean-in? Well, you know, my fundamental issue is Sheryl Sandberg wants us to lean in within the existing system, and I want us to redesign the system. And so I go back to what I said earlier. We need to build our own financial and business ecosystem because the white male one is not working for us. Love it. <laughs> what is psychological safety for you, and why is it so hard to stay true to yourself? And, and what, what can you do instead? Especially, I think, in the, in the corporate world. I mean, I worked in banking for a long time and it, it's actually really hard to come as you are just because of the environment and people see you and, and, and stuff like that. So I'm going to answer that question by, first of all, um, I want to encourage everybody listening um, to this to, if they are able to, consider attending the 3% conference in Atlanta. So the 3% conference was started 10 years ago by a brilliant creative director in advertising called Kat Gordon, who started it because 10 years ago, only 3% of all advertising agency creative directors were women. 97% were men. We as women are the primary target for all advertising because we are the primary purchasers of everything and the primary influences of purchase, and yet in a male-dominated advertising industry, a white male-dominated advertising industry, yep. we are targeted and talked to and played back 
to ourselves all the time through the male lens. So CAT started the 3% conference to change this. I've keynoted it every single one in the 10 years since. She has changed it. Today, 23% of all advertising agency creative directors are women. Still not enough, by the way, but, but change is happening. And the 3% conference over that time has become a creative industry conference in totality. But um, here's the reason I tell everyone to attend it, which is my answer to your question, because it's not just that the content is amazing. I mean, the speakers and the lineup, you know, and the content is fantastic. It's not just that it is not just the most diverse conference in my industry. It's the most diverse conference anywhere. But and I actually made this point from the stage in a keynote of mine at it several years ago. You do not realize how much our industry does not welcome, champion, celebrate, value, compensate, and reward women until you're somewhere that does. And I tell people to go to the 3% conference just to experience what it feels like for two days to be somewhere that welcomes you, champions you, values you, is interested in you, celebrates you and rewards you, and you realize what it's like working the rest of the time in an atmosphere that doesn't. That's the issue. And so this is, again, why I say I want us to redesign the system, because once as a woman, you work somewhere where you are welcome to be your whole self as much as white men are. It's a goddamn fucking revelation. And you will never want to work anywhere different ever again. How can um, anyone dream bigger and try to change the world? Um, it's very simple. Um, you start doing it yourself. So my first startup, If We Ran the World, was built around the concept of microactions. Again, you know, as I said earlier, I designed my startups around my own beliefs and philosophies. I believe that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Every single one of us, every single day, taking microactions to change what we want to see change, cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. That's how we change the world. Compounding, small actions compounding over time. Mm. Cindy, I have three quick fire questions. What is the best financial decision you ever made? Do you know, the best financial decision I ever made is entirely thanks to my parents. As I said earlier, my parents were very poor. My mother's Chinese. And my mother, therefore, like many Chinese, is all about investments you can touch. She's all about bricks and mortar. And so the one thing that my parents really hammered home to me and my sisters from a very early age was the moment you can, you buy your own property. You get on the property ladder. Buy that first apartment, buy that first flat. And so, you know, in 1987 in London, when I was 27 and I was finally earning, you know, because I'd, I joined advertising at in an entry level position. You know, I mean, when I came from theatre where I'd worked several years, but I wasn't qualified. So I, I joined the, you know, entry level graduate training scheme. So, you know, I finally had a salary that allowed me to get a minuscule mortgage. And so it was time to buy my first flat. And I couldn't afford anything in, in London on the right side of the river, as, as, as we put it back in those days. And, you know, I, I, was at, um, I was at an agency called Ted Bates. And one of my friends, Sarah Shaw, who's a TV producer there, I was bemoaning the fact that I wanted to buy my first flat, couldn't afford anything. And she went, come to Southeast London. 
And I'm going, where's Southeast London? She said, come to Nunhead, where she'd bought a flat. I'm going, I've never heard of Nunhead. <laughs> and so, you know, th- this, this is all those years ago. So, so basically, I organized to go and view some flats in Southeast London, in neighborhoods I never heard of. And I bought my first flat in a place called Peckham Rye that I'd never heard of. And my first flat cost me the princely sum of £41,500. And even so, the mortgage was a huge stretch, you know, but that was that was the best financial move I ever made because I then, some years later, wanted to, um, you know, move up and buy in North London. And so, um, and, and at the time, the UK had, was in recession. And so um, I had a um, broker come around and, and value my apartment. And he came around and he looked at it and he went, um, so I'm really sorry to tell you this, but, you know, the most you could get for your apartment right now is £56,000. And I went, great. And he went, what? <laughs> and I went, I only paid 41500 for it. That's fantastic. And he went, wow. He said, you are the only person um, who's responded like that to evaluation because everybody else bought at the height of the market and now is underwater in there, you know. And so I, I really recommend to our audience, and I know how much more difficult it is today, but getting on the property ladder in whatever far-flung corner of, you know, wherever you live, in, a, in some place you've never heard of that I guarantee will gentrify one day. I mean, I was hysterical with laughter when several years ago I saw the Evening Standard site Peckham as the trendiest neighbourhood in London. I should have hung off it that is. apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, trust me, in 1987, it was not, you know. But, but honestly, when you can... That is one of the most surefire ways to generate wealth, depending on on where you buy, because I am talking about urban centers where it's a very safe bet, you know, but, um, but, but that was the best thing I ever did because that enabled me to trade up to an apartment in North London that I sold for three times when I paid for it. That enabled me to buy raw space in New York and build an apartment in it. That was a fantastic investment. And when I sold that, I was able to find another Terrific apartment in New York. This is the one I'm living in now. Hashtag the sky apartment. Looks amazing. I can see you. It looks amazing. <laughs> and, and, and incidentally, I, I will just, you know, to, um, as we're talking about this for our audience's benefit, my real estate purchase philosophy is always go looking for what nobody else wants. Yeah. Because the only way to ultimately own a nice apartment is to buy a hole and then do what you can to renovate it. And that's what I've always done. And the Sky Apartment now, you know, I, I went looking for what nobody else wants. And I found a triplex penthouse on Fifth Avenue in New York that is on the 33rd, 34th, 35th floors, has outstanding views, three terraces, a huge amount of outdoor space in the heart of Manhattan. It had not been touched maintenance-wise in any way for 35 years, and it was being lived in by a hoarder. Total bargain, because everybody else ran screaming. Um, It was an absolute bargain for Manhattan. It then required a full-on gut renovation of everything, obviously, but that is why I now live in a fabulous apartment. Always go looking for what nobody else wants. What is the worst financial decision you ever made? Do you know, and again, I I will share this because this may help other female founders, probably at the moment, and I very much, you know, and worst in this context is is subjective, okay, but um, I very much hope this will turn out not to be the case, but probably it was putting 
everything I had into Make Love Not Porn. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so I have done absolutely what many female founders I know have, which is I have jeopardized my own personal financial security by caring so passionately about my own startup that I have put, you know, all of my savings and, you know, effectively the equivalent of my, my retirement fund into Make Love Not Porn. And I say that because, you know, honestly, I would recommend that you don't do that. Yeah. You, you know, t- there is a degree to which absolutely put what you can in, but do not jeopardize your personal financial security. And, I, I, and I've done that. Um, and, and so I, I would just say to other female founders out there that there is a line to draw and, and to try and find alternative ways of funding that do not put you yourself in financial jeopardy. What are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? At the moment, that question is depressingly easy to answer because, you know, this is the downside of owning an apartment in New York. Um, I have a combination of inevitable costs that relate to owning property in New York. My real estate taxes are very high and there there is a very substantial service charge And the apartments you buy are in buildings which have their own, you know, boards and regulations and set service charges. And and so there are charges related to owning property in New York City and living in New York City that are different from and higher than than everywhere else. So um, that that is, you know, it's not something, unfortunately, I can cut down on. And it is substantial. And I very much wish that weren't the case because... I'd be able to live on a whole lot less um, if it weren't. But, 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 but that is regrettably what I spend most money on at the moment. Do you have a favorite book to recommend? I most certainly do. So I, I recommend this book to everybody. And where this book comes from is that um, it's by my dear friend, Thomas Hamoro Primusik, who wrote what is the single most read Harvard Business Review article of all time. It's an article called Why do so many incompetent men become leaders? And the premise of Tomas's article is, and I quote him, you know, we focus quite rightly on the many barriers that face brilliant women, but a far bigger problem is the lack of obstacles for incompetent men. And this article was so popular that Tomas turned it into a book, which he published a few years ago. The book also is called Why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it? The issue, as Tomas says, is not the barriers that face us. It's, it's the complete lack of barriers for totally unqualified and incompetent men. And by the way, every competent man should want to you know, absolutely help us change that situation as well, because there is nothing more demoralizing than working your guts out and seeing a privileged white male who has no talent or skills, get to leadership, board directorships, and make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money because he doesn't face the kind of grilling, the kind of evaluation, the standards that the rest of us do. Cindy, thank you so much. I'm definitely ordering this book. And is there anything else you'd like to share or to recommend with with anyone uh, listening to this episode? Sure. So obviously, I would like to say, if you appreciate what I've said, please support my startup. Please do follow us and me. I'm at Cindy Gallup. We are at Make Love Not Porn on Instagram, on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. On Facebook, I'm Cindy.Gallup. Our Facebook page is MLNPTV. 
And finally, if anybody out there knows of an investor who gets it, please email cindy at makelovenotporn.com to be part of our funding round. Cindy, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. And I'm sure, um, you know, I'll see you in the headlines by the end of the year with a, with a big fundraise. Thank you very much, Emily. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Wallet today. Please share with a friend and subscribe or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, we have a new format coming out. So I need you to send me your proud money moments, your questions and comments via our hotline at emily at Speak to you next week.